From the campus of Yale University, this is To Live and Dialogue in L.A. I'm Aaron Tracy. On the pod today, Jack Epps Jr. It is hard to explain how much Jack's writing has meant to me since I was a kid. If you're a fan of 80s movies especially, today's guest is going to blow your mind. Jack wrote, I can't even believe I'm saying this, he wrote Top Gun. Top Gun! If you're like me, it's a crazy thing to think about somebody writing that movie, that it didn't always just exist. And as if that weren't enough, Jack and his partner Jim Cash also wrote The Secret of My Success. That movie isn't as remembered today, but it's probably the movie I've seen more times than any other. It is pure joy. Starring Michael J. Fox, it's an uplifting, underdog mixtape of a romantic comedy. The Secret of My Success, I dare say, is perfect. Now, I know we're at Yale, and I'm supposed to say that Citizen Kane or Vertigo or The Godfather are the only perfect American movies, but this is a different thing. Jack wasn't trying to win Best Picture. These are popcorn movies. These are melodramas that rely on heavy emotion, that take us on big, sweeping journeys with their heroes. These are, for a lot of us, the soundtracks to our childhood. The movies that are always on, that we quote with our friends, the ones that completely change our mood, make us feel good, inspire us. Maybe they're not Beethoven, but they are the Beatles. And I will debate their merits with you all day long. Jack also wrote Legal Eagles, starring Robert Redford and Deborah Winger, Turner and Hooch, starring Tom Hanks and a dog, and Dick Tracy, starring and directed by Warren Beatty. So he is objectively one of the crowning giant screenwriters of the 80s. And while these are unquestionably high-budget studio commodities, you can still feel the writer's voice in them. Top Gun and The Secret of My Success are both stories of underdogs brimming with arrogance who hit giant obstacles because of their arrogance and have to overcome them in order to triumph. In that way, they're classic American dream stories. The young up-and-comer arriving out of nowhere who no one expects much of, harboring a singular passion for what he does, determined for his abilities to shine through. They're like American mythology. In Top Gun, Maverick, the character played by Tom Cruise, goes on the hero's journey right out of Joseph Campbell. He has a fatal flaw, which is that he's arrogant and only looking out for himself, not a team player. He's also consumed by the ghost of his father, who he's desperate to measure up to. It takes a tragedy in Maverick's life to humble him, which leads to a crisis of confidence. And the dramatic question becomes, will he be able to regain that original confidence when circumstances demand it of him? Yes, it's a popcorn movie, but that trajectory is right out of Oedipus, right out of Macbeth, right out of the Iliad. But, like I said, throw all that out, and it's just a killer time at the movies. Top Gun was the biggest movie of 1986. No less than Quentin Tarantino, playing a small role in the movie Sleep With Me, has a very funny monologue that starts, You know what one of the greatest fucking scripts ever written in the history of Hollywood is? Top Gun. Without further ado, I am so excited... Jack Epps Jr. By the way, thanks to our friends at ScreenCraft who are spreading the word about this week's episode. Check out ScreenCraft.org for top screenplay competitions, educational events, and more. Uh, hi, Jack. Hi. Hi. Um, I'm incredibly excited to be talking to you. 
your book on screenwriting and rewriting was sent to me, which I read and really, really liked. Um, also, in advance of talking to you today, I rewatched Top Gun and The Secret of My Success. I got to admit, I was a little bit nervous. Um, but <laughs> man, did they hold up. They are so great. Well, that's nice to hear. You know, it, 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 you want your work to stand the test of time and not become irrelevant. Um, I happen to like those two movies a lot of the ones that, that uh, I've written. Yeah. Uh, did you, have you watched Top Gun in 25 years? Oh yeah. No, I, you know, I actually teach it occasionally okay. and I, I'd go to screenings of it. Um, uh, as you know, it was, it, it was, uh, accepted into the, uh, national, um, pre film preservation and Congress, which was really great, uh, uh, two years ago. So that was very exciting. Oh, that's great. Was there an event around that? It wasn't, they had a screening last summer. I didn't go to it. Um, and also there's uh, Hollywood Forever screening where they uh, screen it at a cemetery. Right. And uh, uh, they, that was actually fun to go to. And, you know, it's watching a movie with uh, an audience is really special because you really get to feel their their presence in the movie, their emotional journey through it. And that, you know, that's, that's part of what screenwriting is about is, is taking your audience on an emotional journey and, and having them interact with the movie in some emotional way. Right. Yeah. And there are a lot of funny moments in it. So it must be nice to get to hear the laughs. Absolutely. Yeah, it is. Um, and of course, the thing about comedy is you hope they come somewhere and they always come a little somewhere else. And uh, it's always an education. And what's tough about being a film comedy writer is that in TV, you, you know, you have a table, you get a rehearsal. But in movies, you, you sit down at the premiere and you see if it works. Right. <laughs> you get a little. Um, well, one question I had about Top Gun um, or sort of in general about your work. Do you think there's room for a writer's voice for a personal vision in a big studio movie like Top Gun? Oh, absolutely. And I think that personal voice comes through the characters. Um, you know, there, and, and in fact, if I have one complaint right now is those voices are disappearing. And the audience likes it. They really want to see uh, the personal voice. Uh, they want to see that uniqueness to it. And I think when it comes in that there's a point of view, it just makes the movie fresher. It can deliver on the big set pieces, on the big special event things, but let's, the characters should have a life to them that is more than just these stock voices. Uh, and I, I, there's no reason not to. No, I couldn't agree more. And, you know, Maverick's trajectory in the movie, the Tom Cruise character, you know, it, it, it feels like Greek drama, you know, complete with fatal flaw. Did you purposefully take him on the Joseph Campbell hero's journey? I didn't purposely took him, take him on the hero's journey. Basically, uh, it was about a flawed character, and it was just I was just telling the story the, the best way I knew how, uh, realizing that there was an arc and a journey, and he, he had to come and have a realization about himself and be motivated to change. Right. Um, you know, another thing I love about the movie is that, you know, you expect it to be like a war film. But we never even see the faces of the enemy. You know, we only have one scene of our heroes in battle. It's just so much more character-based. The threats feel so much more internal. Um, did you ever have a draft where where the enemies that they were fighting were a bigger part of the story, or was it always so character-based and internal? This is a very unique film, and, and it, it happened in an interesting way. In that, my partner and I, Jim Cash, at that time, were, were being offered a tremendous amount of work. Uh, it just we were at the right place. Even though we didn't have anything made, unproduced movies, we were suddenly a, a hot writing team. And so we had a lot of offers of work. And when Top Gun came by, I had my private pilot's license. So I was really interested in flying in a Navy jet. Um, and so we were sort of a little bit arrogant. And we could say, hey, you know what? You got to believe in us. We're going to go away and we're going to write this movie, but we're not going to pitch it to you. We're going to go Go give us the first draft. Let us write the draft, and then we'll give it to you. Then everything's up in the air. 
And that allowed us a freedom that if we had pitched it, we would have had to pitch the plot. And it would have, everybody said, well, what happens? What happens here? I don't see any battles. Where is the fight? You know? Right. And, and so because we didn't have to, I could do a lot of research, which I did. I, I spent, um, I did about 40 interviews. I spent weeks at the base. I did several flights. And when I did my first flight, I came off of the, uh, off of the, the, uh, the plane and I was just drenched. I was exhausted. It was such a grueling experience just because of the G forces they're pulling and the high speed passes. Uh, because these were the, the XO top gun instructors and they were just having fun up there like they always do. And they didn't pull anything back. We pulled eight and a half G's. And I called my partner and said, Jim, this is not the movie we thought it was. This, this is a sports movie. These guys are athletes. This is one of the most grueling experiences I ever had in my life. And that became the metaphor that these are not, it's not about war. These are about athletes and who's the best. Right. Of this right. And it's a competition. And that gave us a real focus on this movie. And both Jim and I were athletes, so we could really tie into, you know, you've got to be number one to play on a team. You want to be a starter. You don't want to be sitting on a bench. And to be a starter, you've got to basically ace everybody out. And that gave us a, a, a really sense of who Maverick was. You know, and, and what we had to set up that was difficult was you got to like him, but you got to realize he's a guy with a bit of a problem, but you got to like him. You got to respect him. So, uh, you know, that was one of the challenges of that movie. Um, I, I love how much research you did. Um, and it, it, it clearly shows in the movie, um, certainly in the dialogue. I mean, w- one of the things I was struck by on rewatching it was how much jargon there is in the movie. It, it, it felt like a precursor to the network procedurals that we have today, you know, ER and CSI, where the jargon is just thrown at you. You know, I love that you never explain, you know, what a hard deck is. You just expect the audience to figure it out. It was a decision we made really early on, and part of that came from the research, because the first couple of days I was interviewing these guys, that's all they talked about is in jargon. That's all they talked about. And I, was, I didn't want to look like an idiot and go, well, what does that mean? Right. So I, you know, I'm just listening to the interviews, and I, we had to figure it out. And I said, you know what? We're going to have the audience figure it out. We're never going to tell them what this is. They'll get it. They know what it is. They'll get a sense of it. But when I kind of stop and say, oh, by the way, uh, this is what this means. And... We also had a great technical advisor, man, uh, actually a big killer, uh, and a rear admiral at one point in his career, uh, Pete Pettigrew. And Pete was a storyteller. And every time we'd call him, we'd say, Pete, what would happen here? Like the landing and the opening, call the ball. What's the ball? I have no idea what the ball is. And he just went down the list of how it would be. And we'd really transcribed it uh, <laughs> to have that authenticity because we thought that was critical. That's great. That makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, if it were being made today, and I know there is a sequel being made, right? Are you involved in it at all? I am not being, I'm not involved in it, no. Okay. Um, and, you know, I would bet just from the way movies are today that it's going to be much more about um, combat. It's going to be much more about some giant, you know, Russian threat or Middle Eastern threat that they have to, you know, go up against. Um, but, yeah, I, I love what you said about it being much more of a sports movie. You know, in any good sports movie, the team that they defeat at the end, yeah, you, you barely know them. It's it's not about that team. It's about the um, it's about our team figuring out a way to, you know, become cohesive. But one of the changes we had to make was that um, we asked the pilots when we write a movie, who would be, who do you expect to go up against? And they said at that time, this is about 1982, they said the North Koreans. We think that's our, our potential enemy. So at the end of the movie, we actually had in the script, it was North Korea. Oh, really? The State Department made us take it out, said, no, no, we can't do that. We, we're, we're trying to detente with them, so this would be inflammatory. Right. So it just became, and it didn't matter, really. It's just, it's the threat. You right. know, it was a Cold War, Cold War era. You had an easy villain. Uh, and again, that's not what the movie was about. It was really about 
these guys, the, the pilots, because that's that was where the excitement was when I was researching. It wasn't, you know, yeah, the planes were just amazingly cool and, and what they did, but these guys were just unique, and it was that was our job. How do we capture these guys and the world? And then one of the things that was really in doing research, and I think research is so important, is that when they talked about I mean, they were kidding around all the time. And, but when they'd stop and talk about somebody they lost, they just changed. You could see the pain was still with them, that they, they just felt it very deeply for their lost uh, um, uh, pilots, their friends. And an early decision was, I want to make the audience feel that loss. I want to make the audience really know what that means. Because in so many flying films, it opens up, and I did research and watched a lot of films, it opens up and the first thing, there's a plane crash. Flying is dangerous. But it's sort of desensitizes the audience to really losing somebody uh, because, it, you know, it doesn't matter to me to lose somebody. So we wanted to bring the audience to the brink. They expect to lose somebody, but they don't. And then when we lose Goose, they emotionally feel it. I mean, I, I sit in the theater, I turn around and watch that moment, and the audience sits up. You can just feel oh, it. Yeah. What, what has happened here? And that's what I think makes the movie substantial is because what is a comedy becomes a dramedy, a drama, and what the audience now is, is in it. They're in it very emotionally, very deeply. They felt something too, and they're participating at a very different level. Right. Uh, and I think that's one reason that movie does stand the test of time. Completely. Yeah. It's one of the first movies I remember seeing where, um, you know, such a likable, uh, lovely character gets killed, and just the devastation that my sister and I used to feel watching it. Oh man. I mean, you Goose is such an all timer, great character. Um, it, it is, it's, it's absolutely devastating. Even watching it the other day, now much, much older, it's still completely devastating. And that's, and that's a rule of cinema that I, I, I was so surprised we got away with it because it's like, don't kill the most popular character right. in the movie. Just don't, don't do that. Um, and, but yet no one ever, every, no one ever said, oh, we shouldn't do this. It was never a note whatsoever. Hmm. Everyone understood the importance of it. And it, and it really does. It takes the movie to another level. Uh, for all of us. And I say that because as an audience member, you feel it. Right. Um, and I'm curious, you said, you know, you obviously did a ton of research for this. Your partner, it sounds like maybe did not. Does that complicate the writing partnership at all? If you have a ton of firsthand experience with certain material? I, I you know, it depends upon the relationship. Jim and I had a wonderful relationship. We, you know, our communication was, was excellent. We respect each other. And uh, I was able to communicate it uh, to Jim in terms of the experience. Jim lived in Lansing, Michigan, and I lived in Santa Monica. So we wrote long distance. Oh, interesting. So, That's how my partner and I write. Cool. Yeah. We just found a way to do it. Um, in fact, we invented the internet. It wasn't Al Gore. We did it. <laughs> Good work. Wow. We have so much to thank exactly. you for. I didn't even, yeah, this exactly. podcast is going to have to be nine hours. Yeah, exactly. I didn't even get a nickel. So what's the deal? <laughs> um, but, uh, well, look, I, I want to play a, a clip from the movie um, and then talk about it from a craft perspective. So, uh, in the, in the first scene of the movie, Maverick, who's, who's played by Tom Cruise, is flying in a training exercise, and his wingman in the next plane has a panic attack after an encounter with an enemy MiG. Maverick disobeys orders to land and instead guides his wingman safely onto the aircraft carrier. Once they land, that wingman, Cougar, quits. So now Maverick and his partner, Goose, are called into their commander's office, played by James Tolkien, ready to be chewed out for disobeying orders. Um, let's listen to that clip, and then we'll talk about it a little bit. Maverick, you just did an incredibly brave thing. What you should have done was land your plane. You don't own that plane. The taxpayers do. 
Son, your ego is writing checks your body can't cash. You've been busted. You lost your qualifications as section leader three times. Put in hack twice by me. With a history of high-speed passes over five air-controlled towers and one admiral's daughter. Penny Benjamin. And you, asshole. You're lucky to be here. Thank you, sir. And let's not bullshit, Maverick. Your family name ain't the best in the Navy. You need to be doing it better and cleaner than the other guy. Now, what is it with you? Just want to serve my country, be the best fighter pilot in the Navy, sir. Don't screw around with me, Maverick. You're a hell of an instinctive pilot. Maybe too good. I'd like to bust your butt, but I can't. I got another problem here. I got to send somebody from this squadron to Miramar. I got to do something here. I, I, I still can't believe it. I gotta give you your dream shot. I'm gonna send you up against the best. You two characters are going to Top Gun. For five weeks, you're gonna fly against the best fighter pilots in the world. You were number two, Cougar was number one. Cougar lost it, turned in his wings. You guys are number one. But you remember one thing. You screw up just this much. You'll be flying a cargo plane full of rubber dog shit out of Hong Kong. Yes, sir! <clears throat> that is all. You tell me about the mix some other time. Gentlemen. Good luck, gentlemen. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Man, what an iconic scene. Um, do you remember writing it at all? Oh, yeah, sure. Thank you. Yes. Well... That, I, I'm really very proud of that whole opening sequence, the everything up until that moment, because we made early decisions that we wanted Maverick to be second, an underdog. We wanted this to be an underdog story. Right. That he wasn't, in, in every traditional movie, he's the star and he just goes right in. But we want to say, no, this is a guy who's got some issues, he's got some problems, and he wasn't going to go. And the only reason he went is because somebody else dropped out. So he was second place. So you have a story of a second place guy that's got something to prove that he wants to be the best. And then we wanted to put all this sort of history of, you know, all these hints along the way. He's got some issues. He's done some crazy stuff. We just saw him do crazy stuff um, and gave him really motivate him strongly. But always he's not the first guy. He's got a problem and the problem's been haunting him. And then he's got a history, uh, um, you know, a family history that's hinted at. Right. Yeah. And I love that with the ghost of his father. Um, then this is, of course, is the first indication he's running from that ghost. Um, but it also sets off Ma Maverick as a, as a rebel um, with everything that um, the commander ticks off. You know, it is a great way to get out exposition, but hide the exposition, the reveal that they're getting their shot after thinking that they're just going to be chewed out. Um, exactly. Exactly. And, 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 that, and that was the, you know, sort of setting up that in the opening because we wanted to show him as a heroic character. This guy's an amazing pilot, but he doesn't you know, he breaks rules. Well, we love guys that break rules. That's sort of the right. American, we love these sort of guys. But yet it's a problem in the military where you don't break rules. Sorry, that just, it doesn't work in there. So how does this guy fit in there? Right. The, uh, the thing about Maverick was that when I was doing research, I went down there and, you know, you, uh, when I'm always doing a project, I'm trying to look for the conflict. Where's the conflict? How am I going to write this conflict? Where is the tension that I'm going to explore and exploit throughout this movie? And... These guys all got along. They were great. And they support each other. It was about a team. And I'm going, oh, what am I writing here? I don't know who's the story. And then it like popped in and said, oh, yeah, one guy doesn't. What if one guy is the problem? He doesn't get along. He isn't out for the team. He is, he's his own guy. And Maverick came very quickly 
as that was the conflict. Hmm. Uh, and so that helped us in terms of really building out from there. That's really interesting. Um, and, and in terms of that theme, I, I love that it, it really is set up in that scene. Um, because after, after chewing them out, you know, at the very end of the scene, com the commander just very earnestly says, good luck, gentlemen, um, which does feel like a precursor to Maverick's antagonistic relationship with his teammates like Iceman. You know, they're competing against each other, but in the end, they're all on the same team. Absolutely. They're all pulling together. And, and that is the theme of don't leave your wingman. Right. You know, that's a very simple theme. Don't leave your wingman, which, which is the critical theme. The theme for me in this movie, as I was writing it, was no man is an island. That you just cannot live by yourself. Hmm. You are part of this larger culture. And for me, theme is important to the writer, not so much to the audience. They don't look for theme, but theme to me is cohesion. Theme is what binds your script together. And, and I found my best work is always done when I have a very strong theme that I'm continuing to, to work with throughout the screenplay. Um, and I'm not lurching from idea to idea. Now, there are many themes, but there should be one overriding theme that just sort of helps you uh, just unify your screenplay. Right. Um, and it's really interesting to me that you found that theme uh, doing hands-on research, that it wasn't just something you came up with, you know, in, in your apartment, um, that it actually took meeting these guys to, to figure it out. Well, I think anytime you're dealing with, with, with a world, uh, you've got to learn what that world is because world gives you story, gives you character, gives you conflict, but you've really got to know the world. You can't fake it. And although I had my pilot's license, I didn't know anything about the military world. I, I I understood flying, but, you know, pilot, private license, that's, you know, you just fly 10,000 feet is really high. And so going to that world, I was looking for things to, to write about. And, and part of the research on that was when you, I had to do ejection seat training. Well, the research is sometimes when you eject, there's debris above your plane and you'll, you can eject into the debris. So that's pretty interesting. Okay, didn't see that coming. Let me write that thing down. Mm-hmm. And that's the jet wash, right? That was the end exactly. of Goose. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, it's, and that came out of the real world. In fact, I think for this script, truly, virtually everything that happened in this screenplay happened to somebody. It, I took pieces of the interviews and pieces, well, this happened to this guy, this happened to this guy, and glue, glued this stuff together so it happened to virtually one team, uh, you know, one to Maverick. Um, so it is really based on reality. Right. I think the best. The best um, comment I got on this from one of the pilots who said, I could finally take my family to the movie and show them what I did because they never understood what I did. That's that. great. Um, there's also the end of that scene, um, you know, that great music comes up. Did you realize how much music uh, Tony Scott was going to put in the movie? No, I didn't really. Uh, you know, we put we put uh, different music in there. And I don't do that too often, but we, we, we did a, a Ride Me High from the Cars to sort of gave a feeling for the music, but... Oh, you know, in the script, a, you put that in? Yeah, we did. It started with that. Um, and they considered using it. In fact, I think it's actually in, in some of the trailers, early trailers, they had that song, but didn't end up using it. Uh, I, I think it's also Simpson Bruckheimer, because they had done Flashdance, mm -hmm. and at that point in time, you were really trying to uh, use a soundtrack to promote a movie and try to get that cross-marketing uh, uh, on that sort of thing. So soundtracks were big, and that was part of the Simpson Bruckheimer team. Mm-hmm. Um, and when Tony Scott, when they're talking about Tony Scott, the director, Tony said, it's effing rock and roll in the skies. That's what this is. So I think it was always conceived as this sort of uh, high energy, you know, right. steroid. 
Right. Yeah. The music works incredibly well. Um, That's interesting that you put a a Cars cue uh, in the script. Did you put a lot of music cues in the script or was it just that one? You know, I can't really recall. It's been a while. I think that was basically the one to set the tone. Okay. Um, because I, I'm not one to put a bunch of music in because it's, it gets in the way. They're going to get a music coordinator who can do that anyway. <laughs> right. Were, were you um, on set for the movie? No, I was not. I was off writing another script. Okay. Um, so how did, were you able to, to work with Tony Scott at all to sort of convey your vision, or was it just through the script? Oh, uh, um, basically through the script. I mean, Tony took it. What I really got to give Tony a lot of credit for is that he shot the script. He didn't play with it. He didn't you know, oh, I've got a vision, let's change this. I mean, he really shot the script and, and took brought brought his own visual style uh, and his energy uh, to the movie. Mm-hmm. I think that was... Um, and I'm curious about the ending. Did you ever have other endings than the one we saw on screen, or was it always Kelly McGillis coming back at the end with the jukebox bit with the Righteous Brothers? Um, there, there, was a, there was a draft where we did not have somebody on base uh, we actually had had uh, somebody else going on base. Then we brought it back to to the base um, because uh, that was one of the Simpson Bruckheimer notes: is that this should be a contained world. They should never leave the base. And then we got a note from the Navy that well, you, you, she can't be a Navy person because you can't have officers having relationships. It's against regulations. So she then had to be uh, an outside. Um, <laughs> Interesting. Is that why she's an outsider? Okay. Yeah. That, that is why. Um, so yeah, it was always coming back. It was it was that it was that person who could support him in his in his you know his flaw and, and help give him support. Uh huh. And did you know? Uh, it, it sounds. I mean, when you started, when you sat down to write the script, did you know the ending? Did you know it was going to end with him with Kelly McGillis, with him deciding he wanted to be an instructor at Top Gun? Um, how much did you sort of know when you started? Well, we, we knew that at the, at the end he was going to succeed and come around and, and watch his wingman. I mean, that was basically mm-hmm. the script. Um, that was the, the goal. It was, it was watching his wingman. That's sort of the thematic. Exactly. That was really the point of that. And also, you know, obviously this relationship continuing. Um, but, you know, what was great about the guys is that you've got these, these guys who, you know, loving feeling came from them, came from the pilots. I mean, this is, you know, it, it's, you know, lines like your ego's writing checks your body can't cash. That's, that came from the pilots. You know, really? Oh yeah, these guys had they have these amazing lines. It was just sitting out writing all this stuff down because this is how they talk to each other. And wow. and so that's the reality of those things. It just it came out of them. I feel the need, the need for speed. Is that theirs too? No, that's ours. <laughs> nice work. Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's been used a lot. Um, it's killer. So I'm curious, um, you know, how did your life I mean, Top Gun was the biggest movie of nineteen eighty six. It was such a giant movie. How'd your life change after writing it? Well, it, it's interesting because we had seven unproduced screenplays, and that Top Gun being the last unproduced screenplay. When we first handed it into Paramount as the first draft, Simpson Breckheimer loved it. Uh, Don Simpson said, I, I will kill to get this movie made, <laughs> which is a great thing for a producer to say. You go, all right, good. Uh, you know, just don't, <laughs> I don't want to be a party to it if somebody dies. <laughs> but uh, um, the studio went, ah, we don't see it. There's all these planes. I don't really see the movie. Then they put it on the shelf. They actually did not go ahead with it. Wow. So we were heartbroken because we said, geez, we really wrote this. This was going to be our produced movie. We, you know, I did everything I could to make a, a, you know, a, a hit movie. It's sort of what you want to do as a writer. You want to have a success. So we went on and, and worked on Legal Eagles with Ivan Reitman. Uh, Frank Mancuso came on board as a new producer, a new head of the studio Paramount, and he went to Simpson Bruckheimer and said, uh, we have nothing here to produce. What do you guys have? Do you have anything? And they... Hand him Top Gun said, we want to make this movie. He goes, go, do it. 
Wow. And that's actually how the movie got made. It originally was not greenlit. So, you know, it came, we weren't, it was a bit of a surprise. And, you know, no one knew how it was going to respond like that. And that year, the big hit movie was supposed to be Sylvester Stallone's Cobra, which hmm. nobody's heard about. And it just hit a nerve. So we went from having no movies made to having the number one hit movie in the world. And how my life changed was that before that time, we were pretty much left alone because we were doing development deals and stuff. And people, you know, that sounds great. Let's do this. And then suddenly everything we're thrown at us was really sort of high profile, which meant that suddenly everybody's looking over your shoulder. Everybody's telling you how to do it, Hmm. which made it a lot harder because we were left alone with Top Gun and Dick Tracy and other scripts like that. And suddenly now we've got everybody breathing down our necks. Right. It's a very difficult situation. Right. And it becomes more difficult. I mean, I guess I didn't realize that you sort of decided to write your own first draft of Top Gun, just go off and do it. I guess that becomes more difficult when you're now, you know, fully in the studio system. You are. And especially when you're doing high profile projects. Right. You've got very, people who are very, you know, Ivan Reitman had just come off of Ghostbusters, very much hands on. Uh, we just got computers at that time, which sounds like ancient history. I'm sort of age, dating myself, but computers changed the way scripts were developed because before, you know, it was off typing, it took forever, but everybody respected that draft. Now with a computer, you just hit a button, hit a button, hit a button. And so suddenly there was less respect for the draft and it was more revision going over things and producing more drafts, which, which made notes very different mm-hmm. because had a lot more notes thrown at you, and the development process changed because of that. And it was just sort of the way it was. That's really interesting. I didn't realize that. Yeah, a little bit of little bit of pivotal history of screenwriting. I like it. Um, and were you able to see dailies, or do you remember the first time you saw an assembly of the movie? Uh, yeah, I do. And, um, you know, anytime you write a movie, all, all writers are directors in their minds. All writers have a movie. They see the images. They're writing the images. They see a movie. They see tones. They've cast it. We, we cast Tom. I actually cast Tom and wrote it for Tom. And, you know, so when I saw the movie, it was not exactly what I saw in my mind. So there was, there was a bit of a getting used to what sure. Tony's version was. So there are things I liked and things I didn't like. Um, in the end, the decisions that were made were smart decisions. Um, some of them, uh, you know, not quite the movie I, I saw it, but I had to come to see, okay, I understand why they made these choices. And in the end, there was the right choices to make. What was it? Was it, was it less of a rock and roll movie in the sky in, in your version, in your yeah. head? Yeah. Yeah. It, it was, it, you know, these guys, we were writing closer to who these guys were, right. which is, you know, these guys are really smart. They, they took physics in high school. They, you know, there was, there's a little more cerebral quality to them. Uh, and they made, I would say, the film more accessible in a sense, uh, and that was fine. Um, it was, you know, the rock and roll sky. I mean, I think it was the right choice for what the movie should be and what they were releasing. Right. Um, and it's, it stood well. But as always as a writer, you know, there's a little bit of that disconnect, unless you're the writer-director. Sure. You actually take the script, and now you're directing the script. Um, uh, you're always ha- making a handoff. And that handoff is just somebody else is coming on board and, and, and putting a vision on it. Um, sure. And I don't think our visions are far apart. I think Tony did a marvelous job and, uh, and the look and just the small details that he got in. Uh, things like, you know, when you come off and, and you're, you've ejected, you, the, the pressure is so strong that your eyeballs flatten out. And the pilots, you know, they're actually blinded for a, a mini second until, they, they, you know, everything stabilizes. And you'll see in the movie, Tom will do a flip and he'll, he'll blink his eyes and yeah. he's coming back. So those little details were important. 
And uh, I think that just shows Tony's commitment to the to the project. Completely. And so you said, um, you know, you, you were a big part of casting Tom Cruise. Is that, um, is, he, is he someone you knew or you watched Risky Business and loved it? How did you know he was your guy? It, it was, we were basically, it's a character who, if he's not cast right, you're not going to like him because he's a bit of a jerk. He's arrogant, yeah. He's selfish. So if you don't cast a guy you like, it's, it's not going to work well. And, and I've been following Tom's career and thought he was a really, really good actor. I thought, you know, and, and uh, all the right moves. He looked good. Yeah, he looked good in a helmet. I'm saying, oh, yeah, the guy's wearing a helmet. Um, it, but I liked his acting and the quality, and he was so likable that when I handed the script into uh, Jerry Bruckheimer, I said, think Tom Cruise when you read this. Hmm. They did. And they said, yeah, he's, this is perfect. And then they had to get Tom. Tom initially didn't, I don't know. I don't want to do it. He just come off a legend. And uh, so he wasn't sure his agents wanted to do it, but he was, I don't know. So they, they did the right thing. They said, well, why don't you go take a ride up in Point Magoo? So Tom drives up to the Navy, Naval base in Point Magoo. He's got long hair from legend, and this is early 80s, and he's driving a motorcycle, and he's not a star then. So these Navy guys look at him and go, well, who's this guy? And they did what they like to do, which is they take civilians up, shake them up and down, you know, and make them throw up on themselves. <laughs> and so... Well, they took Tom for a ride, and they just gave him the, the whole thing, and he came out of it going, I love this. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. God, so, uh, yeah. it's so funny. I mean, it's such the quintessential Tom Cruise uh, persona, you know, that character now. Um, that's so hard to believe yeah. that there was a time when um, people weren't sure about him. Well, I think they knew he was a star. He just hadn't had that big movie. Legend came out and didn't do anything. Risky Business was his big movie. And he had good, you know, he had good hits, but he wasn't... It, you know, Top Gun became the breakthrough when he was that catapulted. Plus, he also retained the persona of Maverick throughout his career. Right. <laughs> yeah, completely. Um, okay, I want to um, shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about um, The Secret of My Success, which is one of my all-time favorites. Um, you know, the movies are obviously very different tonally, but the main character in both Top Gun and The Secret of My Success is an underdog who no one expects very much of. He's brimming with arrogance, harboring a singular passion and determination. And in both, they hit giant obstacles because of their arrogance and have to sort of overcome them to triumph. Is that is is the connection between them something you were conscious of? Oh no, not not at all. It was it was just um, characters that we tend to like to write. Right. Uh, so it was just that that sort of situation. And how did that movie come to you? The Secret of My Success. It was interesting. So, so basically, it was written before Top Gun was produced. Um, so again, we had no produced movie. Um, the studio had Michael J. Fox from like July 1st to September 1st. They were going to shoot a movie. Uh, because he was family. doing Family Ties. They had a short window. Right, exactly. They had a movie at that time. It was called uh, Fa Family Affair. Uh, they didn't like the script particularly. Uh, I had sort of pitched an idea to Frank Price, the head of the studio, on a different project called First Jobs because uh, we were interested in the concept of how hard it was to get a first job, thought there was a funny thing, and Frank asked to, to take that concept and marry it with this, this movie they had. And, of course, Michael J. Fox, yeah, absolutely. And what was fun is they were shooting in eight weeks, and we just wrote a script, and they didn't have time to play with it, and they just shot it. Pretty wow. Much. I know, it was really lovely. And Herbert Ross was the, the director, who's a great director who came off of Broadway, so he's really respected the written word. Uh, and once again, here uh, um, Herbert was not interested in you know playing with work. He wanted to make those scenes work, and was very theatrical and was willing to do some over the top things, which was really sort of fun. Uh, very playful guy. Yeah, the whole movie plays a little bit like a farce, which is great. Yeah, it 
does exactly. And that last that French farce at the end sequence is really hard to direct. And when I saw it, I was just amazed. I he I think he was the only one that could have pulled that off right. properly. Right. Fun to write. Fun to do. Um, to us, it was sort of an homage to Billy Wilder's Some Like It Hot. You know, I'm a huge Billy Wilder fan, and I always wanted to do a character in a double identity. So that's what we brought to it, uh, which was here's this guy who's playing two roles. Mm-hmm. He can't get a job, so he's going to prove himself and become this other character, and, and which is always a lot of fun. You know, we know he's going to get discovered. How and when is, is the fun part. But wait, so, so during the eight-week period you had to, to conceive this, um, I mean, what was your starting point? Did you have nothing at the beginning of the eight weeks, or...? What, what did you have? We had an existing, had an existing script, um, and the script was, was, it had the bones of it, but it really wasn't quite, it, it, it's, it was very different in tone and feel okay. and comedy. Um, so it was about a kid going to New York to get a, to work for a company, but it just, it didn't feel at all like this. Mm-hmm. Um, um, I think it was. I mean, it's been a while for me to think of that first, that original draft, because right. we did so much work on it. Um, and for us, it really became... You know, getting a job, it just, it's hard to get a job, especially if you're, if you're you know, where do you start um, and how do you get in there? And it, it sort of also was, us, it was sort of a metaphor for the movie business, too. It's like getting started in the movie business. How do you do that? You come out here and people, right. they don't know who you are. And so good luck on that. You know, well, how do I get it started? You know, well, first you got to get a job. How do you get a job if I don't have experience? You know, so. Totally. Well, I want to I want to play a clip that's exactly what you're talking about, him getting a job. This is early in the movie. Uh, Brantley Foster, played by Michael J. Fox, arrives in New York uh, from Kansas to find the job that he had lined up has fallen through. So we have a very quick series of scenes of Brantley applying for other jobs. Um, so let's play the clip and then we'll talk about it for a second. Hi, I'm Brantley Foster from Kansas. You hired me. I still work here today. You're fired, kid. Sorry. We all saw it coming, but we looked for some kind of miracle. A miracle never happened. What did happen? Hostile takeover. 90% of the people in this building are out on the street. You are one of those 90%. Tough break. I'm sorry, Mr. Foster. I'm sorry, Mr. Foster. We need someone with experience. But how can I get any experience until I get a job that gives me experience? If we gave you a job just to give you experience, you'd take that experience and get a better job. And that experience would benefit someone else. Yeah, but I was trained in college to handle a job like this, so in a sense, I already have experience. What you've got is college experience, not the practical, hard-nosed business experience we're looking for. If you joined our training program out of high school, you'd be qualified for this job now. And why did I go to college? That's fun, didn't you? <laughs> What impresses me most is the amount of experience you picked up while still attending college. Well, ma'am, I knew all those years of college would be worthless without practical, hard-nosed business experience. Assistant personnel manager, Jayhawk Communications, junior purchasing agent, Midland Furniture, vice president in charge of production, central manufacturing. Outstanding. Outstanding. You're not going to tell me I have too much experience, are you? Certainly not. You're perfect for the job. Great. Except... No. No exceptions. I want this job. I need it. I can do it. Everywhere I've been today, there's always been something wrong. Too young, too old, too short, too tall. Whatever the exception is, I can fix it. I can be older. I can be taller. I can be anything. Can you be a minority woman? I love that scene. Uh, Do you remember writing it at all? Absolutely. 
Yeah, Jim and I worked on that together, and, and yeah, I do because it was the frustration, the craziness of it, the you know all the uh, uh, you know just double speak, mm-hmm. and, and you feel like you can't get. I mean, I think that's what everybody faces at some point in time. Right. No, it's great. You, you know, it's clear that we have such a passionate hero in our hands with these giant obstacles. The world seems built against him. I mean, you're you're already rooting for him. This is you know three minutes into the movie. And, you know, what we also want to do is also something, business movies don't tend to, you know, it's not like a popular, but we said, you know, running a business, this would be cool, wouldn't it? I mean, you know, you're doing this sort of thing. So rather than demonize this guy or try to, you know, take him away from that, let's sort of say, okay, people can, you know, have a, have a real sense. I want to, I want to run a business. I, this is what I want to do. Right. Um, I also love that it sets up the ending so well. In that in that very first scene, he loses his job because there's been a hostile takeover, which is exactly what the whole movie is leading up to in the end. Um, and you do that a lot in the script. You you plant something, you know, something very small, very quickly, very early on that pays off later. Well, the uh, the hostile takeover was. We actually had another um, advisor, technical advisor, on this to to discuss what hostile takeovers were because we didn't know as writers. And so we had somebody who explained it was, you know, that was what was going on at that time. That was the big thing was, is uh, uh, buying a company against their uh, uh, wishes. Mm-hmm. Buying a st- right. Um, and all, all the sort of um, surrealist moments that um, uh, are in the movie, you know, when, when he sort of daydreams about being with Christy and she's suddenly wearing a, a different dress and, and, you know, everybody disappears from the room that they're in. Uh, were those scripted or were those something the director came up with at the time? I, I think, I think that was her, uh, Herbert's. I don't think those were ours as I recall. It's a while ago, but I'm pretty sure that was Herbert's. Okay. Um, and was this another case? I mean, uh, you were so busy at this point. Were you, were you off writing another script or were you able to be on set and working with Herbert Ross at all? Uh, no, we actually we actually were not on sets very often because it just it's sort of wasted time for us. It's uh-huh. like sitting around watching it get made, uh, not that interesting. While we while we were off working on another project, right. uh, we had a lot of work coming our way, and it was, it, we just did not want to turn down anything. You know, part of being a writer is you can't you don't get any work, and suddenly when it comes your way, you take everything that's thrown at you, right? Uh, because you're, you're, this might be the last one you ever get. I mean, that is sort of the mindset, right? Um, and. Uh, you know, the dialogue in the movie is so great. Um, you said, uh, you made a reference before, but w- were you thinking about Preston Surges and Howard Hawks? You were thinking about Billy Wilder, that sort of um, crackling, snappy dialogue. That was that was sort of the goal? Oh, absolutely. My, my partner, Jim Cash, w- w- was an amazing dialogue uh, uh, writer. He, his dialogue really, it, he studied the 30s and 40s, those, those screwball comedies. We both loved those movies. And part of having a partnership is making sure that you have the same taste. So that when you reference, you're referencing the same material. So there's not some sort of disconnect going on there. And and I loved all that stuff. And and this was our homage to that, our opportunity to play in that genre, right. in that world. Um, and especially Billy Wilder to me. I mean, he walks on water. It's, yeah. If I if I want to know how to solve something, Billy Wilder has solved it. There's an answer there, some way, shape, or form. Right. In any any of it. What's your favorite Billy Wilder movie? Well, I do love The Apartment. It's a brilliant piece of work. Yeah. I saw it when I was really young. And uh, it left a huge impression on me in so many ways. I mean, we, you know, there's a whole thing of, of in, in secret there is that relationship. You have the boss with, you know, having a relationship with one of the employees. You right. know, th- there's a lot of elements that we just uh, homage to. Right. Uh, because it just works so well. And, you know, and Billy Wilder would, controls you emotionally. You're, you feel his movies, not just watching it. And, and we want audiences' involvement. 
Right. And and a similar kind of thing with um with the Jack Lemmon characters in his movies, the you know, the underdog with oftentimes with a you know, a passion, but the world is built against him and there's nothing he can do about it. I mean, very similar to your characters. Absolutely. I mean, we it, you have a rooting interest. You want you want the audience to root for the main characters to succeed. Uh, and so he's got to struggle against great odds to get there. Right. In your book, I loved you. Uh, you included a memo from Tom Hanks, uh, sort of a note he wrote you about what he thought his character should be in uh, Turner and Hooch. You know, and it's, it, maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but um, it was incredibly smart and insightful about character. Um, yeah, I, that's why I put it in. It was insightful about character, and also he, if you read it, you think about it, he was very concerned about his relationship with Hooch, the dog. I mean, he didn't. You know, right. Tom is looking at the depth of the relationship in the story in the character. And we were brought in on that project because Tom didn't have anything to play. He didn't have a character. He didn't have a story. He was basically set second fiddle to the dog, and that didn't work. Uh, and, you know, we, we, it's what we do. It's make the story about this guy and what he's gone through and this point in his life. Why is this the life crisis he's in? And what happens to him now that makes this a movie, an event that we, we, we want to follow? Right. Um, and the book is filled with stuff like that. I love it. So, so your book is called um, Screenwriting is Rewriting. And um, it's terrific. It's great on so many facets of the writer's life, how to interpret notes, how to build character, how to create a character arc, what to do with your antagonist, how to deal with reverses and reveals and obstacles. Um, what made you decide to, to write it? A couple of things. Um, I, I basically, you know, I teach at USC and uh, I'm a professor here and also chair of the uh, John Wells Writing Division. But, and, and something that I believe in here is, you have to learn how to rewrite. Rewriting is not an easy thing to do. It's very difficult. I, I believe that for Jim and I, it's, it's one of the reasons we were successful because we were very passionate rewriters. No one likes it. It's not fun. It's really hard work. Uh, no one wants to tear up something you've already got. But uh, we, from the very beginning, we embraced it and realized that we had to keep getting better. And the only way your scripts can get better is you have to rewrite them. Um, and so I felt like I teach a class here, so let me see if I can take my class and turn it into a book, which didn't happen because that's just you can't turn a class into a book. It's, there's too much detail. Um, and then I just got deeply into it and, and wanted to share my knowledge and experience. Yeah, and it's terrific. I, I also love the interviews you do uh, that you print at the end of the book with Robert Town, who we've talked about a bunch uh, on this podcast. And you also have Frank Pearson and Susanna Grant. Um, how'd you pick those three? Are they friends of yours? Um, no, I, uh, Robert Town, I, I, I had someone who could uh, introduce me to Robert, and he was fabulous, really generous. Yeah, it's a great interview. He has a lot of gems yeah. in there. <laughs> and then Frank Pearson, somebody I also respected a great deal, and, and uh, wanted to get an uh, opportunity to talk to Frank because I think he's a major craftsman. And Susanna Grant, I just I really like her work, and I, uh, especially Aaron Brockovich. And, and what I wanted to do with the interviews was give other points of view about rewriting. There's no one way. It's like, you must do it this way. No, everybody's got a different method. Everybody's got a different approach, and that's okay. But the important thing is you need to have an approach. Right. You just can't just go and just sort of wail at your script and think you're going to make it better. And most people, again, I teach, so I, I go, I've taught a lot of people, they have a tendency when they get notes to throw out the first draft, throw it away and start all over again. And that's, a, in my opinion, it's a real mistake mm -hmm. because part, part of what I believe is there's always something of value. So the first note you should always get in, in, when you're getting notes is what's working. What am I doing right here? What is it that, that I want to protect in this script and what can I build out from? There has to be something of value to save. And if I'm going to start all over again, 
I'm going to basically probably do a poor imitation of the first draft without the, the passion and the inspiration. And I want to use that passion and inspiration. So I'm, I'm a very big believer in having a very systematic approach to your rewrite. Just don't hack away at it and start going all over the place. Create a game plan. Create an approach. Get notes, categories. Figure out what you're going to address first. Right. Uh, and, and do it through a series of passes. I love that. Um, I also really love the section on the relationship pass um, that you talk about. Uh, you talk about ties that bind. You know, um, in each each relationship in a screenplay needs some sort of emotional bond that ties your characters together. Not enough to force two characters into a relationship; they must need each other in some way. Um, I feel like this is one of the biggest problems that you see with new writers. They they put characters together who aren't um, inextricably tied to one another. So in Top Gun, you know, Maverick and Goose, they rely on each other for the very survival in the plane. And in Secret of My Success, um, Christy isn't just someone that Brantley has a crush on. She represents everything that he wants his life to be. Um, this is obviously something you think about, ways to sort of uh, really tie characters together. Uh, uh, Ron Bass has a great quote. He said, books are about what happens inside people. Movies are what happens between people. Hmm. And I think that quote really encapsulates uh, what movies are about. We're, we we want to, the most difficult thing in the world to have is a relationship. <laughs> Go through your life and see how many you have, how many have survived, and how many are deep relationships. And there's a reason for that. They're just hard. And uh, people change. And so we, we're interested in what happens with relationships and, and what are the, the binds of time together and how do those change? We know about character arc. But relationships have arcs, too. They should have an arc. So your movie shouldn't just be about the main character. It's, he's surrounded or she is surrounded by people, and these people are what is part of the story, a major part of the story. The plot is a hanger. The story is about the main character going through a journey with people. And if there is not really depth to those relationships, the whole script feels one-dimensional. Right. Right. Couldn't agree more. Um, also, They're you're... hard to do. They're hard to do because... Those minor characters tend to be underserved. Mm -hmm. They tend to be one-dimensional. Everyone puts a lot of emphasis right. on the main character, but doesn't really flesh out the supporting characters. Right. And I like to tell my students, and it's in the book, I said, look, the supporting character doesn't know they're not the star of the movie. They think this is their movie. And every time they're in a scene, it's their movie. And you have to write them knowing that they have scenes before they come in. They have scenes when they leave. We just never see them. Right. But they have to be fully present in the scene. And the only way they can be fully present is they have to have a story. They're just not somebody uh, who's just throwing lines out there. Right. That's Even if it's off camera, their story. Right. They've got a story. And so they're bringing that story to every scene. And if they don't have a story, then they're going to be flat and one-dimensional. And your script is going to be flat and one-dimensional. Right. I always find a, a pass that's really helpful in my own writing is to go through each scene and look at what every single character in every scene's point of view is. Not just the hero's point of view, but what everybody else surrounding him, what their point of view is. And you often find the characters becoming much more fleshed out that way. Absolutely. And that, that's a great, it's a great thing to do to go through your script and make sure that point of view is consistent uh, throughout your screenplay. Right. Um, also in your book, you, you talk a little bit about um, being hired to write Dick Tracy. For one director, you went through four other directors. It went through three studios before that film went into production. Um, how were you able to, to stay attached that whole time? It was very bizarre. It never happens that way, where the directors left and the writer stayed on board. Um, the first director was John Landis, uh, who wow. um, gave us our, our, work, our walking orders. He said, set in the 30s. 
make it about Big Boy Caprice, go ahead, write, go write a script. And John just let us go do our thing. Uh, and, and that was an adaptation. I, I basically was able to get 40 years of, of comic strips and read them all wow. like a novel so I'd understand the world and, and who Chester Gould was and, and write it you know, based on his work. And wait, did this um, just come out of a general meeting you had with John Landis or he liked your work and so he solicited you? We, Jim and I wrote a, a script called Whereabouts uh, for a producer by the name of Joe Wazan, and it was one of these things where in your career you hope you have this. It was our third, third script we presented to the town, and it was actually an assignment, but we just really nailed it. We, it was a script that uh, was sent to everybody in the industry, and suddenly we went from being unknowns to very viable writers. And John was actually sent this uh, script to consider directing. Uh, and actually, he was actually up for directing it. Uh, and then he had uh, uh, the terrible accident with the Twilight Zone. Hmm. Um, and uh, so that, that that's so he was just in movie jail. He couldn't he couldn't get it done. No, that was that was basically his career for all intents and purposes was over. Wow. Um, and um, so we lost John at that point. We went to another uh, director by the name of Walter Hill. Sure. Joel Silver producing. And Walter did great work with us in the script. He helped us. I learned a lot from Walter Hill. Such a different director. I mean, John Landis, you know, does all these great comedies. And now Walter Hill is known for much more sort of like buddy action movies. Exactly. A very different tone, all that sort of stuff. I would have loved to see John's version. It would have been fun, wild, over the top, big characters. It would have been a lot of energy. Um, Walter, it was a budget issue. Uh, Well, actually, the story that was told was that Warren Beatty was always looked at as the actor. And uh, Warren asked Walter, can I look at dailies? And Walter said, uh, no, I never had my actors look at dailies. Uh, that was it. Wow. <laughs> Warren said, I'm, I'm making the movie. I mean, that's the story was told. Uh, you know, whether it's true or not, I don't know, but it sort of makes sense. And then we did another draft for Dick Benjamin. It moved over to Paramount. And Dick Benjamin was a, an actor director. And we were doing a low budget thing. Let's bring the budget down, guys. And we were just thinning it out, not very happily. And then it sort of lapsed. Dick Benjamin took another project, uh, City Heat with Clint Eastwood. The movie did not get made. So, that, so this is like our sixth unproduced screenplay. So we're like losing our minds. And that's, that's one reason we jumped to a Simpson Bruckheimer next with Top Gun, because we wanted to work with producers who were going to get something made. Mm-hmm. Um, and then eventually, of course, Warren Beatty came around and decided to direct it and star in it himself. How'd you like working with Warren Beatty as a director? I mean, you hear all sorts of horror stories about his sort of monomania. Um, did you feel any of that? We didn't work with Warren very much. Warren basically came on board and it's the Warren Beatty show. Right. And so basically we had some meetings and stuff like that and it went off and did its own thing. Um, we did not write a musical. And I watched the movie later, and I, uh, recently, and I was really, you know, music, Stephen Sondheim, how can you complain? Right. The songs are great. But the movie, I'm looking at it saying, my God, we didn't write a musical. It needed to be adjusted. It's a feature-length film with music jammed in as opposed to cutting it, trimming it, tightening it so the musical can fit in. If it's a musical, make it a musical, for God's sake. Right. So I look back at it, and that's, that's a movie that I go like, oh, boy, I sure would have made changes had I had the hmm. his ear, but. Interesting. It's just what happens. Yeah, of course. Um, and then did you did you guys end up, I'm, I'm sure you were offered to do tons of uncredited rewrites on you know big studio movies during the 80s. Did you accept those offers or were you continuing to just do your own original work? 
No, we, we did a lot of those things, and we, we did a major work on Sister Act. Um, that was because we were working at Disney at that time uh, for Jeffrey Katzenberg, and so we did a, a tremendous amount of work on that movie. Uh, Die Hard with a Vengeance, we worked on that. Hmm, and, I love that movie. Yeah, it's sort of fun. You know, you jump on, you do something, you make some changes. Um, it's, it's, you know, working on existing script is a lot easier than starting from, from the blank page. Right, right. Um, well, look, we've kept you uh, a really long time here. I want to thank you so much for this. Uh, your movies have meant a lot to me over the years, and um, this is just so great to talk to you. Thanks so much, Jack. Okay, take care now. Bye. That was amazing. That was a highlight. Um, man, watching those movies, Top Gun, Secret of My Success, over and over and over again. You know, I also love Dick Tracy. Um, getting to talk to the guy who came up with it, who who wrote them. I mean, man, that's why we're doing this podcast. That was just incredibly fun. Um, hope you got something out of it. Thanks so much to our producers here at the Yale Broadcast Center, Phil Kearney and Ryan McAvoy. If you dug the show, please do us a favor and subscribe and give it however many stars you think it deserves on iTunes. You can hit me with questions or complaints on Twitter at Aaron D. Tracy, or email me at Aaron.Tracy at Yale.edu. See you next week.